This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Our guest today, journalist Bill Bishop, made national news in 2004 in a series of articles describing how, over the past three decades, Americans have been sorting themselves into homogenous communities. Now in his new book, The Big Sort, Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart, Bishop shows how our country has become so ideologically inbred that people don't know and can't understand those who live just a few miles away. Bishop wrote The Big Sort with retired University of Texas sociologist Robert Cushing. He has worked as a reporter at the Whitesburg Mountain Eagle, a columnist at the Lexington Lexington Herald Leader, and on the special project staff of the Austin American Statesman. Bishop and his wife, Julie Audrey, now co-edit The Daily Yonder, a web-based publication covering rural America. Bill Bishop, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you guys? We're doing real well. You're in Austin? I'm in Austin, Texas. Do you like being in Austin? Oh, yeah. Everybody likes being in Austin, and we call it the Velvet Rut. The Velvet Rut? Yes. Huh. We, we Yes. we get People move here, and then they don't go away because uh, they fall uh, into the Velvet Rut and uh, <laughs> just can't escape. It, it, that's, that's a nice rut to be in. It seems like, it seems like such a, a, an oasis uh, in Texas from, from, all I've under, from all I've heard. People in my neighborhood call it the oasis in the redneck desert. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. There you go. Well, well here the, we are sorting you out. Yeah. Oh, we're sorting you, aren't we? <laughs> right. Yeah, it, no, we're, we are definitely sorted here. There's yeah. no, no question. Oh, is that true? Now, now you're the, uh, how would you define your, your sort? Oh, well, I live in my, in my uh, comfortable little Democratic neighborhood. I, I, uh, we're in... Uh, 2000, George Bush came in behind both Al Gore and Ralph Nader. <laughs> wow. And and I live about four blocks from uh, where Jim Hightower lives and about five blocks from where Molly Ivins uh, used, used to live. To live. Yeah. Oh. oh, how nice. That so, was, yeah, we've yeah. all, in a, in a, in a town of, um, of uh, 1.7 million, you manage to have both liberal columnists live within a couple blocks of one another. So yeah. that's, that's, that, nice. uh, that's our nation. Now, what got you first thinking about the big sort, about uh, the way people have segregated themselves? Was there a point in time, you know, this would be pre-2004, where it it came to you? Oh, yeah. No, we were, uh, uh, Bob Cushing and I were interested in how economies were working, and we were interested particularly, I came from Kentucky, and and I was interested why some places remain poor and then places like Austin get rich, and what we could see was that people were sorting themselves, and people with BA degrees and advanced degrees were sorting themselves out of Cleveland and out of Louisville and uh, to places like L.A. and and uh, Austin and Portland and Boise, Idaho and Seattle, and and it was making these places rich. and And so we thought, well, if we're sorting by education, maybe we're sorting politically too. And and indeed, we were. Well, how did it all start? Haven't we always been segregating ourselves somewhat, or did this... Well, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. People have always, I mean, uh, legally, uh, you know, uh, legally enforced segregation. And, I mean, even in eastern Kentucky, where I spent a lot of time in the coal fields, there were Italian towns and and uh, uh, Italian parts of coal camps. And 
our interest was why what we what we found was the beginning in 1976 places were becoming increasingly either democratic or republican so the question wasn't whether people sort themselves by into like-minded groups it was why was it increasing mm-hmm. uh why given incredible mobility and more education and more income it seems like we were using all those attributes to find comfort in in churches and in clubs and in neighborhoods where we were around people just like ourselves. Is, is this because is this because we were taught to think that way, or is this this fear play a role in this? Well, I think I think when the world gets, uh, you all were talking about this earlier about how terrible you know how how uh, government was screwing up, and and essentially that goes back. And this this Democrats need to think about this. Back in 1965. When Head Start started, when Medicare was passed, when when uh, the Voting Rights Act was passed, when Appalachian Regional Commission was created, and National Endowment for the Arts and Human- Humanities were created, when there was an incredible outburst of government action, eight out of ten people trusted government to do the right thing most of the time, and that plummeted uh, to where now you guys and my neighbors and everybody and me as a journalist write about how screwed up government is and and we've retreated from this a uh, national notion of what uh, the country can be and have uh, decided to build our little fortresses within these many cultures and many communities uh where we feel like we have some kind of control huh. so it, so it's a kind of self defense then i it sounds like yeah it, it, it's a it's a retreat and it's a it's a growth of uh of, of people who value self expression over over working within the group and uh and so our neighborhoods and our churches and our the civic groups we belong to become reflections of ourselves and politics becomes a reflection of our way of life rather than policy or or programs and and so it becomes much more important to us uh you know these signals about where we live and how we live and what we do and what we wear and what kind of car we drive all become representations of, of self rather than, you know, a mode of transportation or a house to live in. Right. There is this uh, perverse genius in the in this philosophy that the Republicans, in particular the conservative Republicans, have been pushing since it really, really came to be a national policy during the Reagan administration where you put people in charge of government programs whose goal and objective is to destroy the government projects that they're in charge of or to undermine them to such a degree that people will then legitimately say the government is not doing what it's supposed to do. They can legitimately say the government is failing us because they have been an active participant in the destruction of government services. Except we didn't lose faith in government during the time of a Republican administration. We lost faith in government in 1965. Mm. That's when that's when this stuff plummeted during the, the absolute strongest point of the um, of the great society when government was really creating these programs and policies that we use and value to this day. That's when we lost, not during Reagan. You know, by the time Reagan got into office, the deed was done. Uh, explain and, that. Uh, I don't quite. Well, why do you pick sixty uh, nineteen sixty five? I know well, you, can book, at, you, you can look at you can look at the well you can look at the you can look at the polling in, in nineteen sixty four. Um, eight out of ten Americans thought government did the right thing most of the time. By nineteen sixty six, it had plummeted. Um, 
uh, and uh, LBJ lost uh, the midterms in '66, and the Great Society was over, and 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 our faith in government never recovered from that time. Was okay. Was was that a convergence of the assassination of John Kennedy, sort of a delayed reaction to that, and then the Voting Rights Act for the the institutionalizing of civil rights for blacks and the beginning uh, a beginning of unrest within the population about the conduct of the war in Vietnam were those were those contributing all, factors to all that all those things happened in 1965 Selma happened and yeah. Watts and and the okay but here's the here's the rub at the same time people in New Zealand lost faith in government too and people in Japan lost faith in government and people in Germany and people in Italy and people in England why uh, <laughs> because as generations grow up in relative uh, um, abundance. Yeah. They uh, began to lose faith in the, the institutions that brought them their abundance, mm-hmm. and so not only did we lose faith in government, we dropped out of uh, our traditional sort of liberal, uh, middle of the road uh, church denominations. Mm-hmm. We dropped out of Masons, and as Robert Putnam tells us, we left bowling leagues, and and uh, we dropped out of all those old sort of sort of binding institutions that kept society, that created the society that uh, uh, that that uh, made us wealthy, and and uh, so it was an international. This is an international phenomenon. Americans like to think every you know everything started with the '60s, and a lot did, but really what happened was uh, a, a general function of what happens when people grow up. Uh, Getting uh, having all their needs fulfilled. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Bill Bishop. The book is the big sort. Why the clustering? Why the clustering of a like-minded America is tearing us apart? Um, did the youth culture of the '60s have something to do with that? Sort of the rise of the uh, oh. of that. Yes, gener- you know, it's a generational shift, and and as generations grow up in this in uh, uh, in abundance, then they have the different attitudes about life, and they they value self-expression. Over their poli- uh, whole notion of politics become different. They want to they'd be more likely to join a protest or sign a petition, uh, less likely to vote or run for office. And and so you see you see young people now. You ask them about whether they want to run for office or not. They, a lot don't, but they they are active in you know in uh, making YouTube's or you know about Obama or. Or uh, uh, joining in protests, and and it's just a different way of living that that society hasn't come to grips with, and particularly Democrats. So Democrats spend a lot of time denigrating gov- the government, uh, even while they propose programs that government would have to enact, and and yeah. and so it provides this natural opening for Republicans to come in and say, "Hey, government is screwed up. We need less of it." Yeah. Well. I well, I mean, I I think I take some issue in the sense that uh, I think people, after Katrina, as an example, certainly people understood that they the government needed to be playing a, uh, an active and and a uh, concerted effort to help bring relief to New Orleans, but saw the sheer incompetence. So it's kind of this: you're seeing you're seeing government in action that is is inept. Right. And, yeah, and, and so that so you. So I mean, it feeds into it feeds both both arguments. It feeds into both right. arguments, and right, right, and it it, it we get that we get to a point where uh, unfortunately I think a lot of people just throw their hands up, which is exactly. allowing this vacuum of power to be to be uh, that it's creating a vacuum, a power vacuum in which private enterprise is moving in. Uh, what uh, 
Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism is moving in into areas that governments used to take care of. Uh, and you're seeing uh, you're seeing a further degradation of, of government as an effective instrument. And, and, but interestingly, even uh, uh, private enterprise has the same problem uh, because people don't trust them either. Trust in all large institutions has, mm-hmm. has disappeared. So, so there's some. At one time, GM decided to go into this whole trust advertising mode where they would have every car, a Honda and a. Toyota and a Ford at the at the GM dealership, so you could drive every car and see which one worked the best. I, that didn't work because GM cars aren't you know you have to have the better car at that point. But 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 corporations are struggling with the same phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is that people don't trust them either, and uh, it's re- it's really a tough. And so people retreat into into things that they can control. And, and you know, in my neighborhood, we feel like we can control things, and and we've shrunk the world to the size of our communities, and as a result, we have the nation that you all were describing earlier, something where things don't get done, where uh, we're not able to come to any kind of consensus at all. Yeah. To what extent uh, we've uh, we alluded to it earlier um, w- that this country has a history, a propensity to coalesce in certain neighborhoods and certain cities and certain towns. And I'm, I'm going to go back to something we've covered before, which is the uh, sundowner towns that uh, were prevalent throughout uh, the, the 20th century. Uh, it's sort of an institutionalizing of no blacks, no Hispanics are allowed to live here, and how long that would take in order to sort of overcome those those community barriers. And maybe we've got – maybe we've reached a high water mark in the 60s and now we're beginning to re- retreat back into this idea of the sundowner town in a different form i guess the gated sundowner well, it's, town it's uh, it is but the the uh, the gates are ideological they're, they're more lifestyle than than uh, anything else you in orange county the washington post had a story about ladera ranch yeah. oh yeah Subdivision. yeah i mean <laughs> there you go you have a, a you know you go in the same gate and you go one direction and you have colonial homes and a christian school and you you go another direction, and you got the bamboo floors and a Montessori school, yeah. and yeah. that's for and the so cultural the, creatives. That can, right, they, they can right. Yeah. Yeah. You have a whole town that's a gated community, yeah. essentially. Right, yeah. and, but but essentially, that's what we're what they what they built is what people are looking for, and yeah. they created on their own here in you know my neighborhood of Travis Heights in Austin, and well, you, and uh, you bring something up, which I wonder. I'm wondering about the impact of real estate agents on all of this in the sense that I, I can't tell you being here in Southern California my whole life that within a few blocks you have, you know, I used to live in Long Beach, there was Belmont Shore, Belmont Heights, Belmont Knowles, Belmont I mean, they all they were all within you know, a half a mile square area and people wanted to live exclusively within these very yeah. m- you know, minute little areas and they would, because they could say I lived in Belmont Heights. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. and did, did, how much of an impact are truly are century twenty one having on on this uh, phenomena, or are they just or, feeding into it? Or how I mean, much? I, you know, I always along? wondered. I never got an, a real estate agent to tell me what they really thought. But but the, um, the I wonder also how much just our the abundance of space we have that we're able to create entirely new communities, yeah. especially in California and you know, places like that, and 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 how much that allowed us to do this kind of sorting. So yeah. 
Because I don't think we have the same thing, you know, in European towns. I don't we might not have the same kind of phenomenon. I think it's a, it's a way to market. I mean, personally, I, I just watching real estate people at, in action. They're always looking for an edge. They're looking for an opportunity to create an air of exclusivity for a particular uh-huh. area, so that they can then get another twenty or fifty thousand dollars for that home and say, "You live, oh my God, you live in Belmont, you know, Belmont Shores. That's that's an amazing." Thing and and so you get to you get more of a commission based on that fifty thousand dollars more you can extract out of a buyer. So, uh, but here, but we do the same thing with our churches. So Saddleback Church, I mean Saddleback Church was based on uh, the findings of this uh, of a missionary in India who built churches according to the homogenous unit principle. Yeah, and they wanted to bring his idea was to bring you don't bring one person from a village into a church, you bring the entire village. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, what Rick Warren did was transfer that missionary notion to your part of California and and brought in the entire village of that suburban community. And so he designed a church to reinforce the beliefs and the lifestyles of the people who live there. And that, but that's becoming the way all churches are now organized. So it's not just a subdivision phenomenon. It, it's happening within clubs and within churches and in every aspect of our lives. Yeah. I think churches are, are, are a great example, uh, only because they have a, a proper language behind it, too. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, they used to be congregations, and now they're clubs. And uh-huh. it, they used to uh, uh, allow for the, the outsiders to come in, and, and they usually frown on an outsider coming in. Uh, you know, the, the conversion has to be almost immediate to, to join a church. Well, you know what you know whether you fit or not. There were two. There are two Presbyterian churches here in Austin. One is where the Republican governor goes, and it's where George Bush went. But just a few miles away, there's another Presbyterian church. And when I went, the, the opening hymn was a, a song by Sting, and the, the minister was preaching about female mystics from the Middle Ages, and and wow. so Presbyterianism no longer has a meaning. It's more whether the you know the church has a little rainbow flag on the on the uh, uh, front as you, before you go in. That's a, that's another thing about this. We're very keyed into visual cues uh, yeah. now in America. Right. Well, we can walk into a neighborhood and see just a few things like that, right. like like the rainbow flag, and and feel one way or the other very comfortable or uncomfortable. And it's without anything being said. Even it just becomes a, sort of about a, a sense of being, a sense of place. And and so and then so then and then that aligns then with party and with policy. Yeah. I had a uh, yeah. uh, an Oregon County Commissioner Republican say that the uh, uh, the pro life people in his area don't ask him about abortion anymore. They ask him about property rights because they know his answer on property rights will tell them what they need to know about his stance about abortion. Yeah. yeah. So there we go. Yeah. yeah. It's, we're speaking with Bill Bishop. The book is The Big Sort, Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart. Uh, how do we get back together again? We've been torn apart here. Uh, it, it, it does seem, I, I, it even goes down to people uh, listening to iPods to me. I mean, they, there's a time when you could listen to radio, you could hear things you weren't expecting to hear. And, and now you're, you're plugged into your playlist. I, listen, I know of people that have that have started relationships and probably ended i don't know if they have but started relationships based on what they saw on somebody's ipod yeah 
what they they want to. I've I've seen people go, what do you, what's on your iPod, and want to know what you're listening to, and it will determine. It, I think it well, determines how they're going to that, feel that's about just it. Musical taste there, I, but I'm no, talking but about I, but it's you yourself right. making your own playlist right. and, and listening to your own playlist. How do how do we get away from that kind of mindset? Well, I don't think that we do. I, you know, uh, people in my neighborhood aren't going to move to Lubbock. You know, so <laughs> uh, and people from Lubbock don't want to live here, and 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 so it's just uh, what we have to find is is, is reengage our. Our sense of surprise and wonder about uh, an acceptance of of other people, and and I, you know, that sounds kind of corny and and impossible, but but really, you just have to kind of open your eyes and say, oh yeah, huh? There there are people out there that uh, don't think like us and are in our little enclave. Does does a significant economic downturn uh, in the country? create an environment that's more conducive to mixing, of, of unsorting us, or is it exacerbate the issue? Well, what it does is, is uh, when there's a significant downturn, uh, there, and this is just what you were describing with Katrina, there's a, uh, a renewed interest in what those old institutions can do. Mm-hmm. So when, when uh, uh, the, the Twin Towers were bombed on September 11th, people went back to church, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a renewed faith in government, if only briefly. Mm-hmm. So uh, a uh, uh, an economic downturn will push people to think uh, more outside their neighborhood, more uh, along the lines of those institu- you know, those uh-huh. institutions that we forget during good times. So, uh, so a Great Depression, another one w- would be good for the fabric of the country. That's what we- <laughs> well, I think I yes, think we can promote the Great Depression. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. We're Bring on record. On. We're, Weekly Signals is on record as being in favor of the Great, de- great Depression. Great now, Depression two. Great Depression Bring two. Back the, bring back the pencil sale. Well, well, I actually this actually does this does feed into something that I have been advocating for quite some time, and that is, and I think we need to be prepared as certainly I'll speak as a progressive, and that is, I think we need to have in place a version of the contract with America in the sense that we need to be have in place uh, uh, policies and programs that in fact will mitigate some of the effects of what I believe will be a, a significant economic t- downturn in our country. We need to be ready for it before it happens and not be in a reactive mode and be, allow it to be hijacked by kind of the more um, regressive and uh, um, uh, uh, elements within the political, you know, within our political... The people that aren't in your neighborhood. Yeah, people who are not in our neighborhood. I think we need to be ready and t- we need to be talking about, like they're talking about this GI Bill, a kind of a new deal. We need to be talking about a new, new deal before we get into the the worst of it. Of course, what, what has to happen first is that the Democratic uh, nominee has to realize that he uh, presides over a party that is just as split as uh, the split between Kerry and Bush in 2004. I mean, yeah. when you look at the numbers from that election, uh, Obama, there, there are huge areas of the country that he... There were two different constituencies voting, and uh, uh, he won cities, and uh, he lost everything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has not yet shown an ability or even now a willingness to get outside his arena kind of rock star uh, campaigning mode uh, to emulate what uh, the you know Clinton stood in about a jillion pickup trucks, but in front of fire stations and courthouses, and and made their pitch, and and that's why she uh, darn near won. And and uh, uh, Obama needs to do a little bit of that himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
he has to reach out to the rest of America and, and uh, not be part of the big sword, it sounds like. Right. Yeah. So right. Is, he, is he actually, would you say he's a, a product of the big sword? Do you think that, that he... Oh, I- I think oh yeah I mean I mean the uh, uh the democratic uh, uh primary was just as sorted as the uh, 2004 general election and he's also a beneficiary of the next generation the post boomer post gen x generation of people who are sick of boomer division and boomer fights and left and right and they really are looking for uh people both in churches and in clubs and in and in relationships and in, and in their politics, people who who are willing to to listen widely, and uh, that's the pitch I believe that Obama has that is that resonates among uh, much younger voters. I, I just want to I want to I would say something slightly different. I think Obama is a is a game changing candidacy, but I do I don't think that it's Obama so much as it is a generate I think as you were just describing yeah. a generational shift that it, right. it, it's a mistake to invest everything in him in right. terms of how we see what's happening in America today that he happens yeah. to be riding the crest of a of a of a generational and generational shift, shift. Yeah. and 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 I think that that's I don't want us to fall into that trap if for some reason and I can't envision how he won't win against McCain but if that were to come true uh, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that we are in the midst of something very significant in terms of uh, America in the future. Yeah. Um, well, Bill Bishop, thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. Thank you. Thank you. The, the book is The Big Sort, Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart. Thank you again. All right. Go get them. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals. <laughs>